0: Please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 17. I wonder if anything comes to mind when you hear those words, John 17. What do you think of? Do you know what John 17 is about? you know what happens? Someone has said that John, the Gospel of John, is like the temple of the New Testament. It is the place where we see most clearly the glory and the grandeur and the majesty and the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it has been said that if the Gospel of John is the temple of the New Testament, then John 17 is the Holy of Holies. Because in John 17, we are ushered into the presence of God as He comes communes with himself this is jesus the son of god talking to praying to god the father in heaven and so we're able to look into this and we see this intimate personal communication between god the son and god the father two separate persons fully god who are communing with each other and talking to each other and so we have a glimpse straight into the heart of jesus christ our savior In John 17, we have the wonderful opportunity to listen in as Jesus prays to His Father just hours before His crucifixion. This is just, uh, if if you see the whole story, how it's unfolding and where things are, this is just hours, literally hours before Jesus goes and hangs on a cross for men. And He knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what's coming. He has predicted it. Not only has He predicted it, as if he just knew something in advance, but he has planned this all along. This has been the purpose of God. We'll see that in the text as I read it. But he's coming up to the main thing for which he came. He's coming to die. And he knows what his disciples are about to face, not just what he's about to face, but what his disciples are about to face. He knows that they'll be scattered. He knows that they'll be terrified because of the things that are about to happen. They will fear for their lives. They will think everything is ruined. And so, starting in John 14, he starts to comfort them and to prepare them for this. And he says in John 14, 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen to me. I know exactly what's going to happen to you. Everything's under control. Don't freak out. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. And then he starts and he begins to preach to them. And he begins to encourage them with the certainty of heaven. What is the one thing they need to know? They need to know that there is a God in heaven who's prepared a place for them. And he encourages them with this. He he encourages them with the promise of the Holy Spirit He says, It's good for me that I go, because if I go, then I'll send the Holy Spirit for you. This is good for you. It'll be okay. And he assures them of the certainty of God the Father's love for them. And he says in the last verse of John 16, in this long three chapter interaction with them as he's encouraging them and preaching to them and and strengthening them, he says, As the last thing in verse, uh, or at the end of John 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you. I've said all of this stuff to you so that in me you may have peace. I want you to have peace. And I've said all of this. You have missed my point if you don't walk away with peace after I've spoken to you, he says. i said all of this so that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Just the way it is. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And he's done talking to them, and then he prays for them. And he prays for them in John 17. The whole chapter is a prayer. And he prays for them in two ways. He actually makes requests to God the Father for them. That's what we usually think of when, we, when I, if I say to you, I want you to pray for me. And I, what I mean by that is, I've got things I want you to pray and ask God for, for me. Pray for me. And that's exactly what he does. He prays for them, especially starting in verse 6. He starts praying and asking God to do things for them. And he is still praying for us in this sense. He's praying for us, the Christians in this room right now. He is praying, asking God to do things for us. Uh, The book of Hebrews says he always lives. He ever lives. He continually lives to make intercession for us. That means he always lives to pray to His Father for us. That's wonderful. But He also is praying for His disciples here in another sense. He's not just praying for them, asking God to do things to them. He could do that um, silently, right? He could pray to God and ask God to do things for His disciples, and He doesn't have to let them overhear that. But He does let them overhear it. And so He's praying for them out loud, for their benefit, so that they can hear Him, so that they can write this down, so that we can read it, so that we can hear Him, so that we can be encouraged and strengthened by His words. He wants them to hear Him pray. He wants us to hear Him pray. He's not just asking God for things. He's asking God in front of us so that we can hear the kinds of things that move Him, the kinds of things that he wants the kinds of things that that cause him to commune with his father. So we have a rich inheritance in this prayer in John 17. And what we have in these first five verses that we're going to look at this morning really is one of the most marvelous, marvelous and rich statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ of the gospel, the gospel word, that word just means good news, the, the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We have one of the, the richest and most marvelous statements of all of that that we'll find anywhere in the Bible here in these first five verses of John 17. The whole plan of salvation, the good news, is laid out for us from beginning to end. And we get to hear Jesus speak to His Father about these things. So let's look at this. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things the things that he had just said to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them, to get them ready for what he was about to do. And then, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent i glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do now father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you before the world was i think one of the the most pervasive the most the, the deepest most serious problems that we have today in our culture, you see it everywhere, is that we are completely self-centered. Completely subjective. Everything is always about me. And I think the best picture of this that we get is when you walk through town and you see all of these individuals, all of these people, and what is, what is the vast majority, especially the younger ones, what are they doing? They're listening to an iPod. They've got these tubes coming out of their ears, and a little box, and it's pumping things in. I have an iPod, so, you know. <laughs> but, but they walk around 24-7, there, and they're walking around past people, and it's this little bubble that they create for themselves. They can be in a completely different world than the world that they're really in. It's like, it's like um, we've grown up on movies and television shows and what's always happening in the background of a movie, music. So they have their own little soundtrack. You have a soundtrack loaded on your iPod and you have your favorite songs and you even have ones that fit certain moods and certain activities and you play them and it's like you're in this movie and in the background is this sound playing, you know, and you can kind of. See yourself as kind of the main character who's kind of walking through, you know, walking through campus. And and you're cut off from everybody else, and it's all about you. You don't want to have to hear or think about anything but what you program yourself to hear and think about. That's just one little picture of the individuality, the the self-centeredness of our culture. And so we look at everything through that lens. What does this have to do with me? What can this give to me? What can this offer to me? What what needs of mine can this meet? Everything from the standpoint of what this means to me personally. And you think... Does anyone think you're not affected by that? All right, Jody's hands up. I don't think he means it to me. (laughs) And you think that we can come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and have that not be true? We come to the Gospel, and when we hear the Gospel, when we read the Scripture, when we hear the truth of God's Word, we always think, yeah, yeah, but what's this have to do with me? What's this do for me? Some of you, now, I don't know if this is the case anymore, Lane, but I remember when, uh, I think it was Campus Crusade, and the way that the training was always done maybe this is old so if it is forgive me but it was always um, God loves you right and has a wonderful plan for your life and that's how it starts it starts with you is that an accident it's because we've, we've, we've breathed the air of, of self all of our lives. And so when we come to the Gospel, this is what we do. What will it do for me? Oh, good. God has a wonderful plan for me. Oh, that's great. What is it? And we fail to see the greatness and the grandeur and the awesome scope of who God is and what He has done in the Gospel, it becomes shrunken down, truncated, chopped down, abbreviated to this nice little message about a nice little God who has a nice little plan for nice little people. Isn't that great? That's just wonderful. Tack it on to your life and uh, you'll be the better for it. Try Jesus. See what happens. And even if we don't go that far, we still tend to look at all the truths of the gospel so closely that we don't see how huge it really is. I was uh, my brother used to live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and so we drive out there to to visit him. And as the first time I did that, you're coming in, you go, you come through Kansas, 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 <laughs> Kansas, and then. You get to Colorado. You can either turn right and go to Denver, or turn left and go to Colorado Springs, right? And and as you're turning and you're driving down that road, um, the first time I did it, I looked ahead and I saw on the horizon. I thought, oh, there's a line of clouds up there. And um, well, that was nice, line of clouds. And as you as I kept getting closer and closer, I at some point it realized, I realized, wait a minute, those aren't clouds, that's snow on the top of these mountains. I've never seen the mountains before. And they were huge. It just boggled my mind that you could see them um, hundreds of miles away, I think. I don't know. It was a long ways away. And you see the grandeur. And as you come up on that drive, you see the front range of these Colorado Rockies. And you see how big they are and how they're just massive. And then we drove up into the mountains later on. And as you drive up in the mountains and you get up close to them, you can't see how big they are. You're so close that it's just, you know, you just can't even see the top of them. So you can't even appreciate how big they are. Now, that's exactly how it is with the gospel. When we're so close to it, when we look at it just in terms of, oh, what's it have to do for me? What's it going to do for me today? What's it going to do for me? Now, we need to get there with the gospel big time. But if that's where we start, then we'll never see how big it is. We have to stand back. We have to step back from it from a distance and see the majesty and the immensity of the gospel of salvation. And the only way to do that is to think of it in terms of God, not in terms of you. You have to think of it from God's perspective. And only as you do that can you really understand what it has to do with you. And if you understand that, what it has to do with you is better than what it had to do with you when all you saw was what it had to do with you. So two questions I want to ask this morning of this text. Number one, where did salvation start? And number two, where does salvation end? And that is to say, who planned salvation and what is the purpose of all of it? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you've heard the word of God for years, you're going to think, well, oh, yeah, 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 I know all of that. You could You could give me the answers. And so I want you to be careful not to do that this morning. I want you to slow down. I want you to think. I want you to hear things. I want you to take off the the iPod. Pods? What are those things called? Buds. Yeah, yeah. And actually think about what this says to us. Number one, where did salvation start? Who planned it? If you really want to understand the greatness of the gospel of salvation, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. And again, that sounds like a simple, easy thing for us. But it is rich with encouragement for us if we will actually think about it and listen. The plan of salvation did not start with us. There's news for us. The plan of salvation did not start with us. Nothing ever starts with us. Maybe you've heard a, a preacher say this or you've read it in a book or you've heard it on the radio or maybe you've thought it yourself. Have you ever heard anyone say, why did God create the world? Well, I know why God created the world. Why did He make people? I know why. It's because He was... What? What would be the wrong answer to that? Lonely. He was Lonely. He didn't have any friends. And, you know, eternity is a long time without any friends. And, of course, God had been around forever. So he'd been around for eternity. He'd already lived for an eternity without friends. But somehow now, at some point, he decides, no, I can't handle this anymore. I've got to make someone that I can talk to. And the plan went bad, you know, because people had free will and it all went bad. All shucks, you know. Doggone it! My friends turned against me. Now I'm lonely again. Now I've got to go to plan B. I've got to get my friends back. This is the way... Now listen, I know what our theology says. And I know that none of us would say that. I, I think. But we're fallen... Sinners. And we always turn everything back on ourselves. And so down there somewhere inside of you, I'm convinced every one of us has had that thought. God, this is really all about me, isn't it? Well, it didn't start with you. Okay, so it started with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ looks down on this mess. And, and you know, Jesus Christ is hes nice, you know. He's tender. He's compassionate. He's, oh boy, this is bad. I know. Hey, Father, how about if I go down there and, and clean up the mess that your friends made for you? And God says, oh, well, okay, fine, go. No, that's not it either. The Gospel started with God the Father. Everything started with God the Father. And it wasn't because he was lonely, it was because he was full. It wasn't because he was needy and empty, it was because he was full that he made this world. He overflowed with goodness. And he had rich fellowship with himself and his Son and his Holy Spirit. And he didn't need you. But he overflowed with goodness. And look what happened. starts with God the Father. Jesus says to the Father in verse 2, You gave me authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, I may give eternal life. He says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life doesn't just mean living forever in the great Sweet by and by, it means knowing God forever. And knowing the God who sent His Son. Verse 4, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Slow down long enough to actually see what He's saying. It all began with God the Father. God the Father gave the Son authority. The Father gave the Son of people A particular people He gave to His Son as His. He gave Him a mission. He sent the Son. He he gave the Son work to do. This all comes from the mind and the heart of God the Father. Now, why in the world is that such a big deal? I think it's a big deal. It's a big deal for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, it tells us, again, that salvation does not originate with us. The gospel is not a self-improvement plan. The gospel is not just thrown out there as a nice, you know, like a really, 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 really good um, life insurance policy. And if only you knew how good it was, why, you'd buy into it too, unless you're just stupid. And so, if you have bought into this insurance policy, it's because you're smart. That's not the way it is, is it? If that's the way it is, then again, you're at the center and you're in control. And it is all about you. It's about you being smart. It's about you being wise. I'm so glad that I decided to choose Jesus. Won't you be smart and wise and choose Jesus too? That is always what's in us. Again, it doesn't matter what we say in our theology. What we think and how we feel and how we operate is this is about me. I made a great decision when I decided to become a Christian. If you were wise, you'd do the same thing. The gospel is not a self-improvement plan. The gospel is not a set of outward activities for us to follow. Again, I know what we say in our theology, but how we act and how we think and how we feel is... The Gospel is about me doing certain things. And when I do certain things, God likes me. And we even tell our children, I've just started... I've thought about this, and and I've started not to say this so often to my children, because... It can be very confusing down the road. What I have always said to my children and even prayed for them at night when I'm tucking them in is as I pray that they would love God, that they would love Jesus Christ. And I tell them, you need to love Jesus Christ. Now, is that wrong? Obviously not. (laughs) We're commanded, we're created to love Jesus Christ. But what am I saying to them? God will accept you if you love Him enough. What should I say? Father, help, help my boys to trust You. Son, you need to trust Jesus Christ. You need to trust Him. And that trust will overflow in love because faith works through love. But you need to trust Him. The Gospel starts by telling us we cannot do it. We can't love Him enough. We can't obey Him enough. All we can do is sit back and trust what He has done. So we're totally helpless. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're by nature objects of God's wrath. We are powerless to do anything about it. That's what the Gospel says. But the great Lord God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, this High King of Heaven, has stooped down and taken notice of us in our sin, and He has initiated this whole plan to save His people from His own Wrath and anger that they justly deserve. He he bends down to save people from Himself. From His own holy anger and wrath. And it's God the Father who thought of that plan. It doesn't start with us, it starts with God. So we always need to always constantly shift our focus off of ourselves. Always shift the focus off of yourself. And the second reason that's so important is this. Maybe some of you have fallen into this terrible mistake. And again, it's not because it's what your theology says when it's written on a page, but it's how you feel and it's how you act. This terrible mistake of thinking and feeling like God the Father is a harsh, cruel, impatient, unkind, distant, cold taskmaster. Who really wants nothing more than to make you miserable, actually. Both now and forever. While Jesus, on the other hand, is nice, soft, friendly, compassionate. After all, he he has nice flowing hair and wears a nice dress. And, and Jesus the Son, the reasonable, nice, calm, nice, compassionate, friendly Son, has to convince His Father to let you off. Father, God the Father is hard and cruel and mean. God the Son is nice and kind and warm. I hope your theology doesn't say that. I mean, it might, I guess. It could. Especially if you pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. But it's not true. And actually, it's not true on both sides. It's wrong on both sides because we think of Jesus as nice, soft, tender, kind, compassionate, and, you know, God, Father, mean, harsh, cruel. In reality, you read the Bible, Jesus is is the one who talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the original and the ultimate and the best fire and brimstone preacher that ever existed. And if you say, I don't like fire and brimstone, and we don't go to that church, it's fire and brimstone. Well then cut out the Bible, cut out the Gospels, because that was Jesus. Read it. More than that, he promises to come back someday and he's going to come back with a sword coming out of his mouth and he's going to kill people with it. That doesn't sound very nice. But that's true. So if you think of Jesus as only some soft, tender, nice little flannel graph, You're completely wrong. And if you think of God the Father as some harsh, mean, cruel, cold, distant tyrant, you're completely wrong. Because it's God the Father who freely and graciously chose the people to give to His Son. It's God the Father who freely sent His Son to die for them. It's God the Father who gave His Son the task and the work of living a holy life in the place of sinners and then dying the death that they deserved and then rising from the dead, conquering death, It all began with God the Father. Now, do you, do you really realize the implications of that? How are you going to use that for your good? As a Christian, ask yourself this question. How often do you feel like you have to placate God because of your sin? That you have to offer something to God to make Him like you again? That you have to appease Him? How often do you feel like God is opposed to you? That God is against you. That He is antagonistic to you. That He really doesn't like you all that much after all. That He is always irritated at you. That there is constantly... I know that many of you go through your life with this cloud. You remember, uh, I don't know, one of the Peanuts characters. It was, uh, what was the guy? Pigpen, yeah. Would always walk around and there was this constant cloud. You know, remember that? And he'd take a bath and he'd walk out and he'd go Whoosh, and it was back again. And and some of you live with this constant cloud of gloom around you because you think God has always ticked off at you. That He's unwilling to be kind to you, He's unwilling to love you, He's unwilling to forgive you, that if He ever does any of that, He only does it reluctantly. How often do you think of Him as a cold being who's far away in His eternal glory, absolute righteousness, who only reluctantly has anything to do with you at all? Now, do you see how wrong that is based on this prayer? Do you see it? you see how senseless it is? And you're going to walk out of here, many of you, and tomorrow morning you're going to feel like everything that I just described to you as if this doesn't exist. It was God the Father who thought of your salvation in the first place. No one was twisting His arm. No one was forcing Him into it. It wasn't Jesus Christ who came up with a nice plan to appease the mean Father, the mean God in heaven. Your salvation was His idea. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God the Father did that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? That's God the Father He's talking about. That's what He's really like. Jesus does not come on the scene as the reasonable Son who has to kind of settle down the unreasonable, harsh Father. The only reason that Jesus came in the first place is that the Father willingly and joyfully sent Him on a mission to save sinners just like you. And me. And nothing can frustrate God's intention to be kind to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to find encouragement and security and joy and boldness in what God the Father has done for us. One of the reasons we are nearly as bold as we need to be is because we're afraid And the reason we're afraid is we think that God the Father is mad at us all the time. And so what do we do? We disobey Him by being afraid. So salvation begins in God the Father, not with you. Not with Jesus even, but it it is the overflow of His huge heart. But what's its end? Where does it go? What's the purpose? The answer is in verse 1. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Now stop right there for a second and think what that means. The hour has come. This is the point of everything that has ever happened before this point. The hour has come. Everything has come down to this. I'm going to die. And that's what everything was working up to. He says, Father, the hour has come. Here it is. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. It says the same thing in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. What is the purpose of your salvation? Some of you think that the purpose of your salvation is so that life will work out for you. It's so that you won't have children who die. So that you won't have husbands who die. That you won't have children who turn their backs on you and thumb their nose in your face. So you won't have cancer. That God saves you so that life will be easy for you. In fact, not just so that you won't have bad things. That God saves you so that you'll have everything you've ever wanted. So that you'll have the nice car and the nice kids and the straight teeth and the... And the money. Oh yes, the money. Is that it? Is God's ultimate purpose in your salvation to solve all of your problems here and now? Again, now well, some of you might actually say that. You're dead wrong if that's what you actually say. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will have nice cars. They will suffer persecution is what it says. So none of you, I don't think, not many of you would actually say that. But what happens when all of those things do happen to you? What does happen when, you're, when, you're, when you lose a child, when you lose a husband, when you lose a wife, when you get the cancer, when your father dies, when you lose your job... What happens? I've talked to many who say this. I'm, I'm angry at God for what He did. Now what in the world does that mean? The only thing it can mean is somehow, even as a Christian, you have thought of the Gospel as a, a, a title, a, a, the right, a guarantee of ease in this life. And so God didn't come through So God's ultimate purpose in your salvation is to bring glory to Himself. He prays, Father, glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You. That's what He lived for. That is what He died for. He lived and died for the glory of the Father. So my point is that the gospel of salvation is all about God. It isn't about you. And the gospel displays the glory of God. If you want to know the glory of God and what in the world do we mean by the glory of God, the glory is the, the, the shiningness, the brightness, the weightiness, the, the beauty of God, you're going to see it in the Gospel. Because you see what God is really like. You see the holiness and the righteousness of God in the Gospel. He cannot wink at sin. You see the kindness and compassion of the Father. He, he, he does something about sin. You see the justice of God. The justice of God is clearly shown in the Gospel. The Gospel is a matter of justice ultimately because God cannot wink at sin and He doesn't just brush it aside. Nothing you can do about it. Someone has to die for your sin. And every single sin that has ever been committed anywhere on this earth or anywhere else if there are people somewhere else every sin will be punished don't make any mistake about it it'll either be punished in you by your death and by your eternal damnation or it'll be punished on jesus christ every every sin will be paid for. So the Gospel shows us the justice of God. It shows us the glory of God perfectly, richly. And that is what the Gospel is about. It's about God. It's about God revealing to the whole universe the greatness of His own nature. It's about God displaying to every creature the marvels of His own being When Jesus is about to face all of the agonies and the sufferings of the cross, He prays to His Father, Father, glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You. It all comes together with glory. That's the point. In the Gospel, God doesn't make much of you. And I wish that we would get every last shred of that thought out of our minds. Because again, we are taught to think that the Gospel is about God making much of you. He just can't live without you. The Gospel is not about God making much of us. It's about God making us and the people who can make much of Him. If that doesn't fit your view of the Gospel, you need to look at the Bible again. So don't be so short-sighted and self-centered as to only look at the gospel and say, what does it do for me? How does it affect me? What's it do with my personal situation? How does it fix my problems? How does it meet my needs? First and foremost, the gospel is about God. And the gospel has nothing to say to us. It has no solid comfort, no solid place to stand if it doesn't begin and end in God. You think there's any solid comfort and hope in a gospel that begins with you? You know what you're like. Don't you? Now, I know that some of you here this morning... Don't know what it is to embrace the gospel. And I want to speak to you for a minute. I know that some of you are here. Some of you are here and you're here every week. And you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in this church. And you still don't know what the gospel's about. Some of you are here and you've never really heard it clearly explained to you. Maybe some of you look at your lives and you say, you know... Being a Christian means um, not cheating on my wife or my husband. Being a Christian means not getting drunk. Being a Christian means not stealing anything, at least nothing big. Being a Christian means telling the truth, you know. And so I do all of those things. I'm certainly not as bad as those people out there. Therefore, I must be a Christian because I have warm thoughts in my heart about God, general kind of goodwill, and I must be a Christian. But I want you to think about this. The essence of sin is not just doing all sorts of bad things. The essence of sin is failing to live for the glory of God. In other words, sin is not just a list of harmful things like killing or stealing or lying or cheating. Sin is leaving God out of account in the ordinary affairs of your life. Sin is anything that, you don't, anything that you do that you don't do for the glory of God. Now, some of you here who know that you've never embraced the gospel, I want to ask you a question. Can you as an unbeliever ever, have you ever done anything for the sake of the glory and the fame of God I want us all to ask that question everything you do is sinful if you don't do if you don't do it for the sake of the glory of God because God made you and God made the world and God made you for him and if you do anything Without any regard for Him, then that is sin. And you can be nice, and you can have a faithful marriage, and you can never steal, and you can always tell the truth, not because you love God, not because you want to glorify God, but because you are afraid of what people will think and you're proud of yourself. Sin isn't just doing these bad things, it's doing anything without reference to God. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have not trusted God the way we should. We've not been satisfied with Him. We've not walked in with Him. We have sought other things. That's what your sin is. And so the essence of salvation is to be transformed into men and women and young people who do glorify God, who do worship God, who do obey and treasure God and love God and hope in God and who are satisfied in God. And again, if you think of salvation as just doing good things and you have no regard for the why that you do them, then again, you must must come back to the Bible and read it. The Gospel is something that brings you in relationship with God it makes you fix your heart on God. It makes you be awed by Him. It makes you see Him and be amazed and, and overjoyed with what you see. It makes you live in godly fear. It makes you into a person who has as your deepest longing to live for His glory, to display His glory, and to give yourself to His glory. And if you've never had any, any taste of that, if all of your life has been about you and your desires and your life and your plans, then you need to repent. And you need to turn away from all of that. And you need to turn away from your rebellion against the God of glory and you need to entrust yourself to the life and death of Jesus Christ. There are some in this room. I want you to turn to one last verse, one passage that I want everyone who has a Bible to look at with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. There are some of you in this room right now that I'm going to describe as I read this passage. That this passage describes, it nails you. Because you hear all this stuff and you just say, you know what? I just don't get it. Makes no sense to me. Look what God says, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, that means it's hidden, you can't see it, it's covered up. Even if our gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, this good news, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Who are perishing, who are dying. In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you can't see the glory of God, if you can't see the gospel, if this does not make sense to you, it's because you have been blinded. The God of this world, the devil, the enemy of God, has blinded you so that you cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And if Christ isn't glorious to you, it's because you're blind. And if you're blind, it's because you're dead. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let there be light, let light shine out of darkness. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, if you're a Christian and you see the glory of God and you see the glory of Christ and you you're amazed by it and you want it and you want more God has said let there be light and he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ And if that's you it's because God has said let there be light And if it's not you it's because you're blind And the one thing you need is to come to the only One who can give you sight. To let you see the glory of God. To change the things that you love. Change the things that you hope in. Change the things that you trust. The things that you want. The things that you fear. That's your only hope. And Jesus Christ... Stands and offers it to you. Let's pray.